previously on Drinks with Tony. Jay London, you got your problems, I got mine. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, great. Mitzi Shore. Comedy store is legendary. Uh, we'll be arriving in three minutes. We, we got we got the, what you're mad about. Don't look at me. I start cursing. So we got, we got PTSD, we got suicide. I don't want to end on that note, that's dark. Like we, pussies. Yeah. And where would they where would they send that, Jay? Thank you, and I and I thank you for the opportunity. Thanks, man. Hi, this is Alexander Hacker. This is Danielle de Picciotto. Of Hacker de Picciotto, and you are listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. All right, you're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Daniel Tepi. Tepi okay. Daniel Tepiciato. See? Yes. All right. And Alexander Hake. All right. <laughs> Together they are Hake de Picciato. Did I get that right? Perfect. That was really good. Oh my God. I feel so great. Okay. Hake de Picciato is one of my favorite, like, you guys are on one of my favorite bands right now where I will go and I don't go out to see a lot of bands these days. If you guys are in town, I am there. I make sure my night is off. I make sure nobody messes with me and I go. Thank you. That's an honor. <laughs> it's not only an honor. You guys are just great. I um, so let's start. Let's start off with um, how did you two meet? And uh, we'll get Ale- Alexander's point of view first, and then you could tell us if he's wrong. Um, I first uh, saw Danielle standing at a bus stop in 1987 in uh, Berlin, uh, wearing an all pleather outfit and an enormous beehive that made her at least one head taller than she than she was. And I uh, got introduced to her um, shortly after, maybe like a month afterwards or something. Yeah, but I but I saw her as an apparition at a bus stop first. And, and was there attraction, like right away, did you think, okay, this could be somebody in my life? I mean, you probably didn't know we would be here now at that bus stop, but... I had to get off my bike. Uh-huh. I had to get off my yeah, bike yeah. when I saw her. A bicycle, but, a, you know. Uh. <laughs> and then did, you didn't approach her, but you were introduced later? We were introduced later. You know, Berlin was a was like a village at the time, so I I was sure that I would that I would see her again. <laughs> right, because this is the 1980s. Crime in the city solutions happening. Einstein did know and it came in the bad seeds. That whole yeah yeah it was you know it was when it when it was a little when it was a little uh, caged in close knit community. Okay, now Danielle, your your version of the relationship. Um, when did you meet uh, Alexander Hacke? Well, um, I you didn't know this was a relationship show, did you? No, I didn't. <laughs> um, I moved to Berlin in '87, and I moved into a kind of like big community space because Berlin back then was really really cheap, and it was huge. I mean, it was seriously huge. And one of the people living there was the keyboarder of Nick Cave back then no it was Roland Wolf exactly and um, so because of that the Bad Seeds and Neubauten were going in and out of the the apartment all the time so I I met everybody in Berlin pretty quickly on which was incredible but um, Alex I noticed before I was introduced to him yes because I was driving and I stopped at a red light and I heard somebody singing really loudly in the car next to me. 
And so I looked over, and I mean, he, he was sitting in the, he wasn't driving, he was sitting next to the driver, and he was singing at the top of his voice. And I thought, he's so loud. And then I was introduced to him a couple of days later, and I remembered that was a loud singer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then when you were introduced to him, was he, was he like a lot quieter, or did he yell at you? Oh, no, he didn't yell at me, but Alex is very loud in many things. <laughs> <laughs> he was, he's just, you know, boundless energy. So, um, we became friends immediately. Now, what brought you to, because you're from New York, am I right? And what brought you to Berlin at that time? Um, well, I was offered a job in Cologne after I finished studying in New York. And um, I went there and I stayed there for about three-fourths of a year. Um, but it wasn't really that exciting. The job didn't turn out to be that great. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go to Berlin before I go back to New York. And I went to Berlin and I fell in love with the city immediately. It was, I think, a couple of days after um, Wings of Desire by Vin Bendas came out. And I met basically everybody in that movie two days later. And I was like, this is crazy. I'm staying. That's beautiful. Uh, now, I forgot to say, since this is a literary show, you have two books out. One is called We Are Gypsies. The other one's entitled The Beauty of Transgression, right? Did I say that right? Yes. Which, I, I, I love We Are Gypsies. I love, I just love getting into your lives. Um, and then you did it so beautifully with all the illustrations. It's, 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 it's like, it's essentially a relationship book to me because I read that and I'm like, I want one of those. That sounds fun. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, what was the question? There was none. I just put the microphone in. And then, uh, and then I see if you talk. Oh, okay. Well, um, I enjoy writing very much. I've kind of like always been multi, you know, interdisciplinary. I started writing when I was about four. Like I just loved writing poems and stuff, but I never considered it becoming my profession. But um, it's always been in my life. So when I started writing lyrics for music, I was reminded of that poetry. And um, I just noticed that I still love doing it. So I thought, okay, maybe I should just try some books. And I've really enjoyed it. So I try doing them in a regular interval. I'm writing a new one, a couple of new ones at the moment. Um, and when did you come together as a, do it? So when did you come together as a couple? And then when did you come together doing music? Was it the music first or was it the relationship first? Um, it was, um multimedia projects first that we that we started doing together in around uh, 2001 and uh, Danielle was very um, was very uh, um, involved in the and still is very involved in the in the Berlin art scene and uh, and we would we would do these these projects together that that involved music and projections and and stuff like that and um, and we became a couple shortly after that, and um, yeah, and we have been doing these these projects, these audiovisual performances, ever since. Now we're si uh, s uh, sifting more and more towards uh, music, but um, yeah, but that's how we started. And I was, so I didn't know you guys were a couple until I saw Crime in the City Solution when you did the reboot on, uh, you did like the five dates in the United States. I saw you in San Francisco. Such a beautiful show. And you, ha you, ha you guys had to get on the plane like fast, so it ended early. You remember that show? Yes. 
I called I called uh, Slims. I called the pro, uh, the promoter at Slims because I was watching the baseball and I was just like, "Hey, uh, Tracy, what time should I be over at uh, the show?" And she's like, "They're on in ten minutes." And I like ran and got a cab and I was like there right on the first song. That was such a. a, a do you have fond memories of that uh, tour or? Yes. Yeah, we had to. We couldn't actually even get out of our stage clothes or take off our makeup, so we went. We boarded the plane dressed as we were on stage. Yeah. I don't think I've ever done that before, but it was kind of fun, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, everyone apologized. Says, "Look, we can't sign anything at the merchandise booth. We're getting in the van. We love you. Goodbye." Yeah, exactly. It was a pretty uh, crazy kind of ride. Um, yeah, I've I've never done anything like that either. Yeah like uh, getting straight off um, you know like having <coughs> going through TSA right after you come off stage you know it's a kind of experience you know like having them and I have a I have a prosthesis in my in my knee so I'm I'm part metal anyway so I start beeping you know but I was completely drenched in sweat and uh, so that, that's my my fond memories of that particular moment <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Some rock. I mean, you guys were a couple, but some rock stars when they when they get groped after a show, it's for sex. But you got groped at the TSA. Is that exactly? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, the United States takes care of you. Even if you got to get on a flight, they make sure something happens that's invasive. Is that yes, we love it here. <laughs> <laughs> it is good fun. Um, Yeah, I don't. I'm, I feel like I'm moving so fast because I'm trying to get as much in before breakfast. But we have time after you eat a little bit, and you know. Yeah, I know. I, I, but I think the number is like because we have number 46 sitting on the table. So I think I know there's a ticking clock. So I'm just gonna breathe in and go slower. Okay. Yes. We can speak after breakfast or during breakfast. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, well, since I have two of you, I could wait in between bites, and then one can eat and one because you haven't had breakfast yet either, right, Alex? Do you, now, when you, when you get up in the morning, are you the kind of guy that needs to eat early, or do you, I, can you put it off? And see, I get irritable if I don't eat right away. So. Same here. It's the most important meal of the day, and uh, I, I get very cranky if I'm, if I don't get fed. So. Yeah. Um, I'm, but now I am calm and I'm doing my best to be a nice guy. <laughs> Even with a big microphone in your face, you're doing. <laughs> I think I appreciate that. Yeah, we're staying at David's. Yeah, at David, David Yao's, and yeah, and so um, we kind of didn't know if we would have time to have breakfast before because we wanted to be punctual. So yeah. we drove out here, and usually Alex does have to be fed. Yeah. You know, it's like with wild animals. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm the weirdo that always carries, alm carries almonds on me so I don't freak out if I'm in a situation. Yeah. And um, D I love David Yao. I, I think he, he was, was he part of the sh uh, gig that where you guys were last time? Did he do some spoken word? Is that what? Okay, cool. Exactly. We, uh, <clears throat> you know, David is a very funny man. And originally we, we thought that he would come up and, and do like a little bit like a, a stand-up comedian uh, thing. And... Uh, Instead, he came up and he, he told, like, I think three of the most devastatingly sad stories you ever heard, if you, re <laughs> you remember that, <laughs> which was wonderful, too. <laughs> and then, um, is the video, are you going to have video on this uh, tour as well, no video? Because I, I hated the video, I'm so glad you got rid of it. No, I'm just, I'm just saying that, so. <laughs> I mean, we always did 
multimedia, um, like a lot of shows that we did was also with um, like reading texts. We would do like performances based on books because I like literature so, so much. Um, and so if we didn't have texts that we were reading, we always had visuals because I do, I love, you know, doing art. And this time we kind of thought, you know, times are kind of rough and dark and our album, our current album is kind of darker than the other ones. And we thought, you know, we don't really want to entertain on the side with like pretty visuals. We want it to be really about the music and concentrate on the lyrics and what we're trying to you know, say. So it's, it's kind of um, sparser than usual. And it's interesting because people have said that they um, really love it with the visuals, but it does have a different kind of touch to it without the visuals. It's, and it's fun, actually, because people really concentrate on what we're playing. So it's, it's an interesting experiment. Yeah, it's a <clears throat> the interesting thing is that, that nowadays we are all so biased and we are, we are all so um, um, trained to to put so much significance and importance on a screen that particularly a screen that has a, a moving picture on it that doing doing it without visuals it, it, it completely focuses refocuses the attention of the audience you know the, as, as beautiful as the visuals were um, in order to create this kind of energy that we're intending to do it it's it's much um, it's much more effective if the visuals aren't there yeah yeah so you guys have been in uh, North America for a while. You've uh, been through um, Mexico and the East Coast, yeah? Is that? The yeah, we started. We started the tour on the East Coast. We played um, uh, Jersey City, New York City, um, Kingston, New York, um, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, New Haven, uh, Greenfield, and Washington D.C. Now, can you say that in alphabetical order? Go. <laughs> no, I can't. Um, how is the reception? Like, you guys come through the states with your, with your, you know. Sometimes, I wish you would come more. But how is the re how is the reception? Is it are you, are you are you seeing a different audience, a growing audience, or? The audience is definitely growing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's great because, I mean, you know, our music isn't necessarily mainstream and um, it's great. People seem to really like it. We can tell because um, after the show, a lot of people come up to us and speak to us and um, it's growing. So we're really, really happy about that. We're, I mean, you know, doing music like ours, it's really great if people understand, understand and love it. It's always like a present kind of when people do. So we're very happy about that. No, I don't know if I understand it, but I love it. So, um, what what would you like uh, your uh, your listeners to understand about the music, or or is that a bad question? You tell me it's a bad question, and I'll keep going. So feel free though, the rest of the time too. Well, I think you can only understand something if you love it. Okay. So. Um, so I don't love it yet. <laughs> what? So I don't love it yet. I have if I don't understand it, then I'm not loving it. Um, I thought you said you loved it. I love it, but I kind of feel like maybe I just feel like I should understand it on a certain way. Well, you can only understand it if you are if you feel part of it. If you if you don't feel oh, okay. if you don't feel part of a system, there's no way that you can understand it. Because we are cults. <laughs> well, I've joined your cult. 
because I do feel like a part of it when when your music comes out and I just you know and I love the like the throat singing you're doing and then and I was just and I, I and you know and again tell me if I'm completely wrong I was like wow this is like this reminds me of 16 horsepower and woven hand and what David Eugene does and then I find out you you're working with David Eugene yeah we did a we did a record together uh, which came out last year as I can say now um, yeah but what what Danielle and I do and I I think for for me, the way I see it, anyways, is, is that the, the music is really just means of transport for, for what we're actually trying to do. It's like the the um, the leverage that that we that we apply in order to do this kind of. It's more or less like energy work. We're trying to create a a situation where people realize where they are or what we are what we are together. Like, like almost like a human collective conscious thing? Yeah, it's about, it's about energy, about mobilizing energy. It's not entertainment. We don't consider ourselves entertainers at all. But every time we're on stage and when we're recording, we try to uh, create some kind of energy that we can feel touching us in some part that doesn't get touched that often, like within yourself or within your soul or within your heart. And as soon as that starts vibrating you know within yourself it's like okay we've touched that part and so that's what we try to you know create in everything that we do do um do you have any ways to get to that point where uh to get to the the creative where you find the vibration do you do you do any like kind of pre-ritual before uh like uh, starting to create or trick jamming the music no. No, because that would be too predetermined and too intellectualized. I mean, we do stuff like, of course, we do things like meditation and yoga in general. Um, but when we're actually doing music, it's we kind of try to do it in an instinctive way that we just like kind of fumble around until it actually starts happening and vibrating, and and um, that way it kind of surprises us and we're open to all possibilities. So, and then usually the things that really touch us also touch the audience we've noticed so I guess it's kind of a collective thing which is really great it's like a universal area I guess it's almost like a truth because you guys are coming from a core of truth where I feel like people people know if someone's coming from a core of truth or if they're you know coming from spandex and uh, big hair and guitars uh, and, you're just, and you're going oh yeah we know what those guys want cocaine and ladies and you guys have a um, specific uh, I, I don't know you, uh, I'll let you I'll let you finish my sentence Alex because you're really good at that as somebody who teaches novel writing you <laughs> you might you might know a, uh, a quote by one of my favorite writers of all time Flannery O'Connor who uh, who stated that any art form is only means of transport for one thing truth I really like that. All right, I, that's I'm gonna write that. I want that on my wall, and then I'm gonna put like a little multimedia thing because that'll it'll just replay you like at the top of the hour. It, it'll replay what, what um, Alexander said. The title of her one book, um, the um, what's the title of her book? The one where it says it's only good if it um, achieves a certain kind of um, redemption. 
that's well she would also there there's a collections of, of her teachings and uh, speeches that she did also for for writers i think it's a mystery and manners i think or or the habit of being or one there's a, one is the letters collection and one is the 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 lectures and uh and she uh she was talking about you know she was very catholic um so she was talking about the um the the phenom phenomena of redemption and that that how important redemption is also in in fiction that it has it has to come to a point where where the issue resolves or where something is learned and and something is well basically where development occurs you know and i and i yes yes and i find all that very ins inspiring and that's kind of the things that we try to do with our work as well That's great. I love that you've. I love that we have so much Flannery O'Connor there, within this context. Are there other uh, are there other writers or um, other people that you kind of draw to, to 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 essentially to what you've developed to now? I mean, I love Carson McCullers. I love the way I love the surrealist touch to everything that she's written, and also the um, Catherine the um, geeks. Done, exactly. Catherine Dunn. Love that. I'm sorry. Freaks and Geeks is a TV show. Uh, Geek Love. Geek Love. Exactly. Geek Love. Yeah, yeah. I love surrealism in every form. You know, literature, art, music. So that definitely is part of what we do, too. It's like, you know, I, I just love... For instance, I have this thing, my eyes are bad, so very often when I'm going through a town or driving, I read the signs incorrectly, and I love that, because it really, it's kind of like, oh, that's an odd sign, and you realize you've read, you've read it incorrectly, but it kind of turns the whole world into this surrealist space where everything's possible. I'm really into that. <laughs> well, that may, that's really cool, because we all actually, as individuals, have our own perception I mean, we, we have our own perception of the world. We're like our own weird heroes of our stories. So what, you know, what I'm thinking this whole situation is having a nice chat with you. You guys are having your individual, um, what do you call it, reactions. I don't know. Is that going somewhere with that, Danielle? That's exactly what it is. You know, everything can be anything at any point of time and seen from different points of perspectives. I love that. I love that. Absolutely, it's it's basically. I mean, there is there is no objective reality. We are creating it um, as we as we go along. And the three of us sitting here, um, we are under some sort of agreement what our collective reality is. But but really, it cannot be defined. So so um, and that that kind of agreement is, is I think is is very important. And that's also the thing that happens during the context of a of a concert. Is that that we and the audience we are making this active agreement to make this our ultimate reality at at that moment, and that's and that's where the beauty happens. Yeah, that makes so much sense because th the three of us create just uh, create, have this small energy. We have a we have an intimate energy, and I feel like when I feel like well, I've only seen you once when you played El Cid in uh, Los Angeles, and it was great. But I felt an intimacy with the crowd. Um, it's it, and maybe maybe you create that intimacy because you create your music from the vibrations, but I'm just throwing stuff out there. Tell me I'm wrong or I'm right on that. 
Well, you know, it's um, uh, our our minds um, are pretty much working like your uh, directional microphone here. We are able to blend out what is happening around us in order to, you know, develop some sort of context, <laughs> and and um, and that's that's how the cookie crumbles. Have you, have you, uh, Alexander, with, with your approach to music and musical projects, even in the Einst, when with Einstein der Neubauten, have you always felt that way, or was this kind of a growth toward that direction? Uh, I, I guess I'm uh, more and more able to rationalize what I've been trying to do instinctively all my life. It has always been about you know creating um, a certain energy that would be transcendent in a way when i was younger i tried to reach that state by you know doing drugs and all that as you know as we probably all did but uh, as you get uh, you know more experienced and, and mature you uh, figure out that there is actually ways to consciously consciously put yourself into certain states rather than um, you know uh, limiting your your capabilities of perception. But I mean, one thing that not very many people, I think, realize about Einschützen and Neubauten is their great sense of humor, too. And um, one thing I love about them is their Dadaistic approach, because I always like it when, you know, bands or projects or art has that element, because otherwise people take themselves too seriously. And you know, being conscious and all, and and being aware and, and serious is important. But having that Dadaistic approach of saying, "Okay, this is really serious," but now let's put it on its head and take it apart and put it together differently and see what happens. You know, and I love that. And it's definitely um, a great part of Neubauten, especially in their last performance show, Lament, which they did about the um, World War One. Um, they have a great, it's like more of a performance, like a Dadaistic performance, which is amazing. And for me, that's very inspiring because to be able to do something that is as serious and that carries as many really heavy, serious truths and at the same time have that Dadaistic approach to it, for me, is like perfection in a way. You have to have both because that's what life is about, the dark and the light, the funny and the serious. And to be able to bring that into what you're doing is kind of what... Um, I personally, but I think that both of us always try to achieve in everything that we do. I mean, I'm also a great fantasy fan, so that kind of, for me, is also like reality and fantasy. It's the same thing, you know. On one hand, it's really important to deal with reality and how things are, but at the same time, expect that we're all shapeshifters or are, have secret wings and that anything could happen at any moment. So it's like those... those um, contrasts that we really like bringing together to have a magical third happen. That's like what we try to do with everything, that we try to bring together opposites because that way something happens that you can't control and that's usually the magical part. I love that. Yeah, I guess it's the approach of, again, coming back to novel writing, it's, it's the, uh, the magical realism rather than, than surrealism. You know, and and we are, you know, we we are. I, I think we can consider ourselves bookworms uh, to that extent, and and that's the kind of fiction we we love. Um, we love reading, like uh, mag uh, magical realism novelists and like 
Haruki Murakami and, 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 and people and people like that and uh, oh it also reminds me of another <coughs> great quote I, I uh, considering the you know like just the zeitgeist what's, what's happening in the world and, and in American politics and stuff there's a there's a Mark Twain quote that I really like uh, really fitting to these times it says he said that of course truth is stranger than fiction because fiction has to make sense yeah. <laughs> Yes. Oh, so true. It, yeah, it's way too true. When um, when you when you were last here, we chatted after your shows, and we and we, we were talking about different. Uh, I think we were talking about authors. We we got on some subject that I was probably kind of steered it to, and you turned me on to Alejandro Jodorowsky, and so I was just I right away I bought his book on tarot and I bought the uh, the Dance of Reality, and then I didn't even know he was a filmmaker, and I got to I got to he came up here to do a. Um, What the mountain one? What was the mountain film that he did? Uh, Montana Sacra. Is that the Spanish? Sacred Mountain. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was there, so I got him to like sign a book, and that was all. That was all because of you, sir. Thank, thank you very much. Unfortunately, I haven't managed to meet the man, to meet the man in person, myself. So um, you know, props to you. Um, yeah, we. Uh, I mean. Um, I love I love his work and uh, I've been I've been a big fan ever since I I saw uh, El Topo as a teenager. Some very much older friend of mine, uh, you know, gave me some acid and and dragged me into the cinema. We we watched that movie and ever since I've been hooked on uh, on Alejandro's work. And um, it's great that the The one, the, the book that we probably were talking about at the time was the spiritual journey of, of Alejandro Jodorowsky, which which is his his biography, you know, in terms of uh, spiritual uh, development. Yeah. I mean, essentially, I just want to talk to you guys so I get my book recommendations for the next. Uh, yeah. Leonora Carrington is another amazing. And she was, you know, close to him, too, to Alejandro. And uh, anything that she's written and anything that she's painted, check it out. You'll love it. Okay, cool. You know, I, I, I want to look. This is a goal, even though I'm in my 40s. And I'm like, all right, I want to learn Spanish. And I want to learn Spanish enough to where I can read Spanish. Because I want to read a lot of these authors in their original form. Is she translated from Spanish as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Dorothy, Dorothy uh, Tanning is another woman who's really, really interesting in that um, area, too, of surrealism and dreams and stuff. They're all translated. We want to learn Spanish, too. We've been trying for quite some time. How's Spanish working for you, Alexander? Um, I picked up this. There's this great uh, system of learning called uh, Rosetta Stone, where you, where you learn it as like your native uh, language, by just by pictures and, and repeating words that, that you hear. Um, I've I've started that course several times, but then of course you know there's not much chance for me to practice what I what I learned, and I and I lose vocabulary quite quite quickly. So I get I do get lost, and uh, you know in the stress of real-time uh, conversations. What, now, you were both just in Mexico and you spent New Year's down there. Were you able to use some of your Spanish when you were in Mexico? Of, of course I try all the time, but, it, but it's, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm limited to pretty much like menu, menu Spanish and, uh, you know, uh, finding uh, my, my bicycle. 
Donde esta bicicleta? Is that right? Oh, wow. Good. good. <laughs> High school paid off. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of figure always that I have to learn Italian and Spanish before I die because my last name is Italian. I understand pretty much of it because I can speak French fluently um, and I should be able to learn Italian and Spanish very easily. For some reason it hasn't been that easy, but it's still my goal. And I actually decided that we're going to learn it this year. Did you know you've decided you're going to learn it this year? Oh, I've decided that uh, long, many years ago. You know, you're like 2019. Danielle's gonna make me learn Italian and Spanish. Exactly. Yep, that's the plan. <laughs> um, but it, we were we were talking for a minute about uh, your how your holiday in Mexico City on New Year's Eve. You, you um, did you want to talk about that? All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't you love how I just that was a real great question, Tony? Did, did you want to talk about that thing about the thing from earlier? All right. Exactly. That's a wonderful question. Thank you. <laughs> Well, we go to um, Tulum very often because um, a dear, dear friend of ours, Vincent Signorelli, the drummer of Insane, um, he always organizes New Year's parties there. And so half of like New York goes there and a lot of people from L.A. come and from all over and then we play together and we do shows and we, you know, spend the first couple of days together. And um, that's always really, really nice because there's a hostel where we all live and it's kind of like a huge community and I love communities. I love staying in spaces with a lot of people. I'm not that kind of person that wants her own room alone, far away from anybody else where you have to make appointments all the time. I'm really more of a commune person, I've discovered. I didn't know. It only kind of came about that I discovered that since we've been nomads because I realized that I really love living together with people. That was one of the many things that I learned. In any case, um, so we were staying there with all these musicians, and Vincent brought along his mother, who's um, 87. And it was such a pleasure spending time with somebody that was so much, or that is so much older, because it really gives the quality of doing things a completely different kind of essence, because she sees it in a different way, and she mentions different things, and she's so calm, and like all the things that, you know, people our age or younger, like, oh my God, oh my, she's like, yeah, I've seen it, Yeah, you know. It's not that special. <laughs> or she's like, oh, that is really special. So it's, it's you know, the, the perspective of somebody who's that age kind of tells you more what is really important and what isn't, but without even being, um, you know, uh, like a teacher. She just does it instinctively. She doesn't even mean to be belligerent or anything like that. And that's such a present. I mean, I, I wish that... I could move more in groups of people where all ages are, you know, like the old-fashioned family where there's the, the kids and the parents and the grandfather, but not as a family, as a community. I think that the older generations should be um, included a lot more into daily life than they are. It's becoming more and more important to me to kind of work on that. And yeah, I, I just, a lot of these times, I mean, I, I came here and had lunch with... Um, Isis Aquarian, she was the, uh, there's this, uh, um, there was this film that came out called The Source Family, and they were, uh, they were a cult in Los Angeles in the 70s and 80s, and there was Father Yod, and she was his first wife, so she's in her 70s, and when she comes to Los Angeles, I always make sure just to, like, have lunch with her and absorb, just, I'm just, I just sit back and go, that, yes, I, I kind of don't have all the same beliefs, but it's, I'm digging it, you know? 
I used to live together with a musician from New Orleans in Berlin. She was 72, I think. Her name was uh, Dorothy Carter. And um, I was, I think I was, was like in early, late 30s or something. And she was a musician. She played the, her she's the one that actually got me into playing hurdy-gurdy. She played the dulcimer. And she was amazing. I mean, she had this band in England called the Medieval Babes, which were supposed to be the classic um, um, kind of mirror of, yeah, Madrigals. They were supposed to be like the classical version of um, Spice Girls. Exactly. So it was like 13 young women singing Madrigals and Dorothy in the middle playing her medieval instruments. And she was just incredible. She was so fearless. I lived together with her, and she would just pack her suitcase once in a while. She was tiny, and her suitcase was almost as large as she was. She would pack her instruments, and then she'd go busking to Italy or go busking somewhere. And she, I mean, living together with her was amazing. It was really, you know, she'd tell me about Mardi Gras and the thing that she'd been a, um, a sailor on a Mississippi um, steamboat until it, yeah, the what? Mississippi Queen. Queen until it sank. She lived in a commune in Maine. She went to Mexico and went and uh, went to a, a monastery with an anarchic monk. And, and the stories she could tell me were just incredible. And living together with her had the same essence, you know, of her saying, "This is ex- this is yeah, this is special, and that I've seen ten times. So don't waste your time on it." Right, yeah. It was just magical. Yeah. I love that. Now we um. We are gypsies now, which I, 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 the last time you guys were here, I, I, I missed buying the book by, you, you sold them out like immediately. I was like, oh, so I grabbed it because it just, it looked, I just, I was like, that looks really cool. And then I read it and I was like, that is awesome. So what was your experience? I'll, I'll talk to you, uh, Alex. Um, we will give you some microphone time. What, what is, um, what was, what was part of the decision for saying, you know what? We're gonna we're we're gonna leave our possessions and we're just on the road for a while. We will see what happens. Is, is that is, was that kind of the vibe, or did I make it too Hollywood film sounding? Um, well, the the deal was that uh, you know we uh, we met and we uh, we had rented a place in in Berlin for seven years um, in in the north of in the north of Berlin and and Berlin has drastically changed since. Uh, the wall came down when it was a divided city up to 1989 and uh, in 2010 it, uh, the development in Berlin has had finally reached a point that for us as independent artists was seemed unbearable like the gentrification and the the total focus on uh, tourism and you know like flat rate drinking kind of uh, you know idiocy um, and so we decided we will give up this house and we will travel for 18 months in order to find a place that may be more supportive for our kind of people, you know, where the rents are better, where there is a supportive uh, community for artists and stuff like that. Um, 18 months, that was the time limit we set ourselves and uh, of course we didn't find that place within 18 months, it has been more than 8 years now um, that we live this nomadic lifestyle. But for me the most interesting thing about that is that in order to do that 
you have to give up your material possessions and the transformative process that that started by doing that you know it's a, it's a kind of uh, you first of all i i realized how much of my very precious lifetime i have spent on you know working in order to acquire money in order to buy the stuff that i then i'm responsible for you know the more and uh, and how it how much it Im how much it imprisons you well his microphone can certainly hear me um, how much it Im imprisons you to to have these material possessions and um, and getting rid of it you also have to find another kind of center another kind of sanctuary within yourself because you use them as a as an armor you know material things are basically what protects you from the cruel world ar around you you know the stuff that you own and uh, yeah all that all that was very um, was very revealing for me and and it really helped me to develop a new you know a new outlook on on the world i mean i've been always traveling my my entire life uh, i've been touring i started very young as a musician and uh, but being on tour and being having this feeling of being uprooted it, it always uh, resulted in me you know uh, buying more shit and um, and putting you know like building little shrines and altars you know like in my hotel rooms or or whatever and uh, in order to replace this kind of missing home and we but i would always have a place to come back to after those extensive tours and now we um we don't really have that anymore and we have found ways to uh, replace these these kind of which are you know sub these substitutes with something more substantial anyway which is aside of from uh, materialistic belongings was there when you when you first started? Was there an anxiety and uh, um, like right away? Oh, absolutely! I, w I was, uh, you know, the the prospect of for me at least, you know, the the prospect of of having to get rid of this this armor, this this kind of fortress of of material things. Um, it it gave me the creeps, man. I I tell you, and that's and that's basically how we also decided that we're just going to be doing this for 18 months right then we're gonna then we're gonna settle down again you know that's that was the, the deal in the beginning and and after a while I, we just realized that hey you know this is actually this is actually really cool and we went into our storage room where we kept a few things that we did keep and got rid of even more stuff <laughs> and, you know and, and it just makes you feel good it's, it, it's weird because it's almost like the gentrification of Berlin put you in a better place am I putting words in your mouth or is that yeah I mean you also realize you know a, a new for me at least it's a it's a new definite definition of of uh, being conserv conservative because you know you can also be like a re reactionary conservative by not accepting that there is change you know, like we will, like, and that's everywhere in the world. We will not be able to stop the gentrification. We just have to live with it in a way of making ourselves independent from it and and being flexible en enough. You know, it is the survival of the fittest, meaning who is able to adapt to the changes that are going on around you. 
I it just it I find it intriguing, you know, especially because I see it. I mean, I only see it in my little bubble of California, where San Francisco, like gentrification, and then all the anger, and I just. I didn't like the anger that was happening among the creative types where they were like protesting the, and I'm just like, we're here to just create, you know, and how, how can we keep creating no matter what? And you, you found a way. How was it for you when, uh, did you have anxiety as well? Or um, when you first uh, went on this trek for 18 months? That, now, I love that you guys gave yourself a time limit too. That was actually kind of an armor, right? Or no? Well, you you should well with any goal you set for yourself. You actually you should set yourself a time limit, you know, because they you know uh, it is good to to work towards a a set a set time. If you then you know correct your your original aim, that's that's a different thing. But yeah, for me it was um, completely different. I um, I was I felt so trapped and so stagnant in the situation that we were in, um, in Berlin, with it changing um, the way it was. And we, like, we had this house that we were renting, which was quite expensive, and it kind of seemed that we were only earning money to pay the rent. And I was like, that cannot be the reason for be my being on this planet. I just like, I do not, I can't accept that. So for me, it felt extremely liberating um, to give it up. And to like become completely mobile. I mean, we had a house. We had 800 boxes of stuff. Like we really are collectors. We're not minimalists. We were not minimalists. So I mean, it was insane the amount of stuff that we had. We gave away one third. We sold one third, and we kept one third. And as Alexander said, after about a year, he went back into the storage room, got rid of that one third, like half of that one third. And we've been doing so continuously. And I think at the moment we have about. 30 boxes so that's what we did and um, I felt liberated and it was interesting because after a while I was like I feel so comfortable in the situation I realized that actually I you know I was born in Tacoma and my father was in the army so we moved around and it's actually something I'm used to it's the only place I've actually been longer for one period of time was Berlin and um, so as soon as we started doing this, I was like, wow, I feel so comfortable with just having a little bit and, you know, basically a, a suitcase full of stuff and going from one place to the next and meeting people and being flexible. So I learned a lot about myself, that that's actually my natural state of being and that I like being light, like light with my possessions and knowing, like having a couple of things that are important and not being kind of submerged in all the things we think we need. That for me was really, really interesting. And like I mentioned before, the fact that I really enjoy living together with people. You know, before, when we were in Berlin, we had this house and I had become very reclusive. I was like, you know, I really only want specific people to come and visit us. And I was becoming more and more of a kind of a hermit. And since we've become nomads, I've had a completely different development which seems so much more natural to myself so because of getting rid of all this superfluous stuff I've been able to discover things about myself I had completely forgotten which is kind of crazy um, and which are really an integral part of myself so it's interesting because it kind of showed me that 
all this material stuff that kind of isolates you from everything else changes you in a way that you might not have become were you not surrounded by this wall of, you know, belonging. And it, it kind of, you know, brings about the question is like how it's changed our societies as such, you know. And I think that gentrification is basically um, the development of that where it's all about um, possession. Because gentrification is basically about money, you know, about companies wanting to make as much money as possible by, you know, selling you specific ways of living and having. So it's all about that. So if you take away all of that, you know, this whole thing about possession, um, I think that society would suddenly realize things about themselves that they don't even have the time to see being buried by all of that. So that's what our whole journey's been about, and it's been incredible. It's been really incredible. I mean, it's definitely not easy. We've had really, really tough times, um, not in things going wrong, but in questioning ourselves, having severe depressions, like, so if, what happens if we don't ever find a real home again? You know, who are we? And kind of regaining that consciousness about yourself also means having to face certain things about yourself that you didn't have to face if you were surrounded by those possessions. So it's got its, you know, it's got both sides of the coin, which is really, really interesting. And it makes you go through heavy catharsis. But being able to get through that, and that's why we did our last album called Perseverancia, which means, you know, don't give up. You have to go through it. You have to, you know, um, if you go through it, you keep on going in spite of going through this catharsis, you get closer to what you actually were at the beginning, you know, and you find yourself and you find things about yourself that you had completely lost. And it's fascinating. It makes a lot of sense because, you know, even in the, even when I, when you, when dealing with like creativity, especially in the United States, they want, the, the minute you get into school, they try to get the creativity out of you. No, no, we're going to make you good workers. We will make you good employees for when you, you know, go into college debt. And it's and it's nice to get back to let's just go play on the playground again. I feel like I feel like we're all in recess still, and, we, and then we all have that hierarchy. Like even now we're we're in fun recess because we get to kind of just be author, I mean not artist, and talk, and that that's my favorite recess ever. I don't yeah. Um, I was gonna ask you something, Alex. I forgot. How are you doing over there? Oh, I'm I'm well. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right. Good. I just. <laughs> Fun. Are you? <laughs> we are. Are you having fun, Alex? Oh yeah, yeah. All right. We keep it fun here. Um, also, what's intriguing? Bringing it back to energy, it's like our material, our material possessions, our energy, and that that also can be a bind to us, yeah. It's interesting. It's really interesting. Of course, um, being a nomad always brings you back to the uh, the question: What is a home? Because basically, of course, we are looking for a home. Originally, the idea was we want to find a place in which we can live, which isn't as expensive so that we don't have to spend like two-thirds of our income on paying for our rent. Because that was the, the amazing thing about Berlin when I moved there in 97 is, you know, I paid for that huge place I was living at the beginning. I paid, I think, uh, 30 marks, which was about $15 per month. 
And you know that so that is really interesting because because of that you didn't have to work more than once or twice a week in a cafe to be able to cover all your costs. And you know the way they say that competition is important for um, diversity and making things interesting. That's a lie. It's not true because as soon as you don't have to fight for money and you can just concentrate all your time on um, creativity creativity really starts blooming and that's the whole story about why Berlin was so interesting in the 80s because nobody had to worry about money there was no competition everybody was having fun together and in that way even more happened than if people had been competing you know so Berlin's complete reputation of being like one of the most creative cities in the world nowadays is founded on that time where all these crazy things could happen because nobody had to earn money and so um, that whole idea is is kind of fundamental to what we were saying is that we are looking for a place where we don't have to think about money all the time but can think more about you know literature and philosophy and spirituality and um, in that way change our lives and we didn't find it <laughs> not yet now it has now you haven't found it yet but are there any cities or destinations in the running is, is there is there like a is there like a possible one or two, but eh, not quite there? Um, I, 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 fall, I fall in love very easily um, <laughs> uh, with, with places. There, there, there it is. <laughs> um, and uh, the, on our journey, there, there were quite a few places that, that I personally fell in love with, like head over heels. Uh, I do love Vienna. Uh, I, I love uh, the Yucatan. I love um, uh, Joshua Tree and, and the Mojave Desert, um, and also the Hudson Valley in north of, of New York, where we're just like fantastic places. Of course, uh, the political situation kind of postponed our, um, our fondness or our affinity for, for these parts a, a little bit. Um, you know, da Danielle is American. I you know I have a working visa and uh, and. We were considering, you know, spending more time in these parts, yeah. uh, which we are right now. Yeah. But uh, it is. Uh, but coming back, Dunedin. Uh, uh, Dunedin. We it's a part in New Zealand. We toured New Zealand this year, oh, yeah, yeah. and Dunedin is in the um, southmost point of of New Zealand, oh. and we fell in love with that totally. It was actually very the place which was the most like Berlin in the eighties because it's very, very cheap, it's pretty poor, there's only eccentrics living there, or just about only. Um, they have amazing lofts and a, a, huge buildings that are empty, so it was very, very much like Berlin. The only problem there was that it's so far away. It's a lot of, it's a lot of money to get out of there, to get somewhere. Yeah, uh, that was that was cool. New Zealand, New, New Zealand was cool. So they also have like a very intertwined. That's that's the one thing that we like is, like if there's a connection between the art and the music scene, and there's like an intertwined community of, of, of the underground. And uh, again, I mean, I, I can I can endlessly go on about this whole concept uh, of neoliberalism and how much I I hate it. You know, like this the way we are conditioned to think that we have to acquire goods and in order to rise above each other and all that is is uh, complete bullshit as far as I'm concerned. But um, 
interestingly, I, I find I've, I've, I find a lot of resolve in uh, in the imagery of, of symbolism, particularly in in language of these things. You know, like when you say when you say home, um, and when you say well, the, the home point is like the starting point, which basically is the equilibrium, right? Like, or also you you lean out of the window. Basically, you. Um, it is about finding equilibrium within yourself, rather than trying to rise above a certain uh, point or being pressed by society in, into a certain direction. The other thing is um, the word habit and habitat. You know, it's basically you live in your with a habitat is the place that you live within. And the habit is the things that you do, and I and I find a lot of uh, resolve in, in this in this realization that I do live within the things that I do, rather than within the place that I'm at. And at the same time, that frees up a lot of time, which frees up mental space, which opens up the more and more ideas and connections. Another I, mean, I just thought I'd add that, you know, since I'm part of the interview here. Thank you. <laughs> I, I just considered myself a guest at that moment. <laughs> um, another thing that I thought was really fascinating about home, too, which um, a doctor told me once, and which for me kind of explained the whole concept of home, was that she said the best thing against depression is not thinking about it, but surrounding yourself with things that make your senses happy. So, you know, if you're depressed, the, uh, you should find your favorite scent, your favorite texture, your favorite color, your favorite sound, all the things that, you know, have something to do with your senses and surround yourself with that. And um, that will make you, that will give you a sense of relief. And basically, a home is exactly that. So you're actually surrounding yourself. If you, if you are able to do it exactly the way you want without being influenced by all these voices saying you need that and that and that and that in that style, which is fashionable now in that area. Because, you know, but if you can actually build yourself a home which consists completely of the things that make you truly happy, which doesn't mean it has to be a lot. It can be like one scent, one texture, one color. That is something that helps you against depression. It's something that keeps you happy. So basically, that's the answer what a home is. And, um, but you can do that on travel, when you travel too. You just take your favorite, favorite perfume, your favorite sweater, you, your color, you know. And as soon as you feel that you're getting depressed, you, can, you really concentrate on that. And it really does help because we have had issues, big issues with depression. And... Um, Keeping that in mind when you, you know, make yourself a home or find a place where you live, it can also go to like, you know, what climate makes you happy? You know, what landscape makes you happy? Not deciding it because of a job or because of whatever, you know, or because it's hip, which is very hip nowadays. Um, things like that are instrumental for human well-being. And um, so, I mean, like Alex said, there were places that we really fell in love with. Specifically in the U.S., we fell in love with Joshua Tree and with Hudson Valley. Um, the reason why we didn't move to Joshua Tree is because Alexander doesn't have a driver's license, and Hudson Valley, um, because of the situation politically, 
at that point where we're like, we don't know if this is the right moment at the moment. But those two places are actually our favorite places in the world, I'd say. Um, but not being able to move there doesn't mean that we don't have a home. Like, we've been building the home within ourselves more and more. Like, those structures have become stronger and stronger. And in the end effect, I guess, you know, um, for me, it's becoming more and more difficult to be able to concentrate on one space because we've met so many wonderful people in all these different areas where you're like, I want to stay with them and I want to stay with them. And I was thinking the other day when we left the Yucatan because we had a lot of friends there, how on earth are we ever going to decide? Because, you know, we have made so many families and friends that it's really hard to decide, which then again brought me to how wonderful the world is, <laughs> you know, and I'm kind of saying that because we have this song in our um, show, which is called The Prophecy, in which I kind of say, you know, in the Bible, they say that man was thrown out of paradise. And I'm becoming more and more convinced that we are actually still living in paradise. But the way we are living is going to make us get kicked out and that it was a prophecy back then and realizing in what a wonderful, wonderful world we live with so many incredible people is something really important for every single person to kind of think about how can we save this to be able to stay in paradise? Well, you bring up a really good point. I mean, I was severely agoraphobic like 10 years ago and I've suffered from depression and anxiety for many years. And my therapist always used to say, your home is in here. And, it, I, and I was just like, that concept was so hard for me to figure out. And um, it's, when you said that, I'm just like, it just makes so much sense. And at the same time, I could see myself utterly anxiety-ridden, living the kind of lives that you do, even though I'm like, oh, that would be rad. I'd be like, oh my God. And I would have a nervous breakdown on Tuesday and Thursday. You know, at, what do you think, Alex? Home is the starting point, and the starting point is not a point on the periphery, on the outside. It's in the center. Yeah. So um, that's that's the that's the whole idea. Yeah. You know, I mean, we have those issues too: anxiety, panic attacks. I've had panic attacks since January 2016, nonstop, no no matter where I live on this world. Oh, I wonder why. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but it's been really bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And one of the things that really has helped us definitely is meditation. Without wanting to be like all preachy and all that, it's like I um, just from a purely kind of physical thing, um, it's what helps me most. And um, I just like, especially like the whole the breathing exercise and stuff like that, I do it almost all the time, like either in the train or wherever. You wouldn't realize that I'm doing it because I don't, you know, I just automatically do it. And it really, really helps against panic attacks because I've had really bad ones. And that is one of the reasons why we've also been releasing uh, meditation albums. Yeah, yeah. Because it's helped us so much. And we're not yogis and we're not, you know, we're not especially good in yoga either. Um, but just the, the basic small things that we've done, you know, we haven't gotten that very far with it yet. But even that really helps. So we're like, wow, this is a whole universe which is probably even more incredible the more you go into it, um, which we're kind of discovering. And that's definitely because you were saying panic attacks. And all that. That's something that's really helped. 
Gen after January 16th, there's still a few shows to come up, actually. Like, well, yeah? January 16th, yeah, there's, there's yeah, San Francisco, Eugene, Oregon, uh, Portland, Oregon, yeah. uh, Seattle, Washington, and Denver, Colorado to come yeah. up. So. Oh, I've, I have a friend in Boise, Idaho, and I was like, dude, you have to take the trip to Denver because they're playing with David Eugene Edwards. And, but he's a high school teacher, and he's just like, I can't get the day off, man. I can't, I can't do it. So. Uh, Danielle DePicciato. De, 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 thank you so much. For oh, thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. And Alexander Hake, thank you. Thank you kindly, sir. Alexander Hack and Danielle Di Picciato of Hacke de Picciato. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Check them out as they are on tour right now in the United States. Upcoming shows include two in San Francisco, I believe two in Eugene, Oregon, Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, and Denver, Colorado. Also check out Danielle De Picciato's books. They are entitled The Beauty of Transgression and We Are Gypsies Now, A Graphic Diary. Here's my interview with Blixa, with Blixa Bargeld, the lead singer of Einstein de Neubauten from the Drinks with Tony archives circa 2007. Enjoy the show. My name is Blixer Bargeld uh, of uh, the uh, famous and wonderful German band Einstürzende Neubauten and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Your, your scream, which Nick Cave has... Um, you know that was that uh, has said that's how he you know came to you. Um, it scared my cat. Um, and uh, do do you realize? There's a lot of animals that. Yeah, do you realize that? Yeah, yeah, I know, I'm fully aware of that. Yes. Mm. I think it it has actually if I do it right, and it actually has some some frequencies in it that dog makes that dogs don't like either. Yeah. 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 yeah I know. Do you, do you think you almost hit where maybe humans are? Or, or, or human hearing ants, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's especially, I mean, it, it's a very interesting effect if you if you uh, layer that. You know, you have like several several layers of the same, almost the same the same scream in it. Uh, then the um, then the um, then suddenly the room disappears. They, they, there's so much interference in, in, the, in the frequencies that the, the scream seems to be everywhere. It doesn't come from any particular direction anymore. But it seems it's just a moment where suddenly the room zooms in and there seems to be nothing left, but you're in a, in a whole field of that. That's what it's a physical, a physical, an effect in physicality. You know, if you have a mobile phone, an old-time mobile phone, and the uh, ringtones are old-style old ringtones and they don't have any uh, uh, overtones, then there is no directionality. You're, you're not able to say from where the, the sound is coming from because you need the overtones to, uh, to get a directionality. That's the truth, simply. That's why people in a, used to in cafes all grab for their phone when, when somebody's phone is ringing because they couldn't even figure out is it mine or is it something. It doesn't come from something because there were no overtones. And the overtones make it possible for the ear. That's an evolutionary um, a success that you can that you're actually able to find out from what direction something is coming. And with the uh, the interference of very very high overtones, suddenly the room disappears. Um, when you, when you were recording um, your latest release, what um, 
what was the work schedule like? Because uh, you, you you had to um, do a lot of traveling to Berlin to meet with the rest of the band. Well, we it is it's just always very difficult to plan a, a Neubauten record because everybody in the band is busy with with other things too. So what what we were doing this time is this is. Um, I mean, this is the third record that we are doing on a subscription basis. You know, we have uh, Neubauten.org, and uh, we we ask our we ask for a one-time payment for either a CD or a CD and a DVD, and uh, then with that money we are we are working on on that record and on that DVD. So it is always necessary for us to plan for a long time ahead because everybody is involved in other projects too, other bands, other. Whatever soundtracks, uh, theater productions, whatever they have, and so we decided we want to make the record within a period of 12 months, and that we're going to work for six times within those 12 months. And so we worked out what period everybody is available, and uh, then I was flying to uh, Berlin every two two and a half months, and then we worked uh, for a couple of weeks or two weeks or something like that, and then I would fly back. And uh, in the end, as is normal with with Neubauten 2, it didn't take six periods of working, it took seven. But that is still not so bad. So we had, <coughs> we worked on that album for, for these 14 months. And in, to make it a bit more difficult, we recorded also uh, one, one new track for every month. So we re- released actually 15 additional tracks, which is another album. In, in that time, and we recorded uh, two more, no, four, four more experimental albums in the, in the same time too. So in in that 15, 14 to fifteen months, we released, we made two regular albums and and uh, four irregular albums. So we made we made six albums in that time period. I think that is pretty good. I'm absolutely, nobody. The band was pretty. Uh, nervous about that when I put the bar higher and higher and said, look, but we also make a, month, a song every month and we said, how are we going to do that? And we're going to do these Musterhouse recordings. So uh, it ended up to be uh, then literally uh, six records in, in, in 15 months, which is, which is great because having, having done that and they, these are all fairly different uh, let me describe it this way. We were working, uh, say, in three different um, theaters at the same time. We were working at the at the big opera house where we were working on this album. And we also had a small chamber theater somewhere else where we worked on these monthly, monthly uh, songs coming out, which are entirely different from the material that's on the album. And we had a little uh, old factory that is disused where we did our experimental theater in the uh, weekends so we had basically had like three different things where working was completely different but we worked on all these in parallel this experimental theater there the factory something that we did every three months you know we did like a week of working on that a couple of performances etc and this one we would do a new little piece every month and uh, the big opera house we would continue working all this stuff that we are that we are worked in the experimental side of what we were working on had its influence back on on what we were doing in the opera house so to speak the opera house being meaning the main album things things that we are that we worked out in in experiments 
uh, we would take back and we'd say, well, this is good. We can use that in the opera house, you know. Like, and uh, things that we are that we've worked that didn't fit in the in the opera, we put in the in the smaller theater, or we or things that were, were good in a smaller theater. Some techniques, some things that we worked out, and we just took back to the opera house. So that all this had an influence on the album. The album ended up to be fairly homogenous in a way. It is. It is. It is not as many uh, try and error on the on the album now as there would normally be. Normally, when Neubauten makes a new record, then I am able to to uh, say a lot about you know new instruments and new materials that we have explored or new new installations that have been built. I can't tell anything like that right now because uh, there was there wasn't much. Most of the experimenting was happening in, in completely different building sites, so to speak. We were doing things. And the results of that went back, but but uh, it is much more. This time has much more to do with uh, me, and has much more to do with vocals, and has much more to do with singing, with lyrics, and and ultimately me. This time I actually did really did say me, 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 me on this record. Very often when I write a, a record, then I just put up parameters for myself and saying, okay, this record, no I, no first person singular. Or I say, like, look, there has to be something in, in a different language in every song or something. And, and, and this time I didn't do anything like that. I just said, okay, whatever comes out, I will, I will let it happen. And uh, naturally a lot of me, me, me came out. So every, every, basically every second song has, is, has its autobiographical tint in a way. Yeah. And that is... Uh, and there is more singing, and there is more vocals. Then, 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 not that there was little vocals before, but there's certainly uh, it is more present in this time. That's the way it came out. I didn't plan it that way, but I guess that's what you do in an opera house, and so to speak. With uh, the the focus more on yourself, do you feel? Um, do you feel? Um, how do you call it? Not exposed, but like. Um, yeah. Right. yeah. No, no, no. It's, it's not. It's not wrong. I, I, I could be hurt. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. That is uh, sure. I, I let. Uh, I thought I'd, I just really didn't need much defense. I just thought I'd, I let it happen. Uh-huh. Ah. What was the work schedule like? Because uh, you 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 had to um, do a lot of traveling to Berlin to meet with the rest of the band. Well, we. It's, it's just always very difficult to plan a, a Neubauten record because everybody in the band is busy with with other things too. So what what we were doing this time is this is. Um, I mean, this is the third record that we are doing on a subscription basis. You know, we have uh, Neubauten.org, and uh, we we ask our we ask for a one-time payment for either a CD or a CD and a DVD, and uh, then with that money we are able, we are working on on that record and on that DVD. So it is always necessary for us to plan for a long time ahead because everybody is involved in other projects too, other bands, other. Whatever soundtracks, uh, theater productions, whatever they have, and so we decided we want to make the record within a period of twelve months, and that we're going to work for six times within those twelve months. And so we worked out what period everybody is available, and uh, then I was flying to uh, Berlin every two two and a half months, and then we worked uh, for a couple of weeks or two weeks or something like that, and then I would fly back. And uh, in the end, as is normal with, with Neubauten 2, it didn't take six periods of working, it took seven. But that is still not so bad. So we had, <coughs> we worked on that album for, for these 14 months. 
And in, to make it a bit more difficult, we recorded also uh, one one new track for every month. So we re released actually 15 additional tracks, which is another album in, in that time. And we recorded uh, two more, no, four, four more experimental albums in the, in the same time too. So in, in that 15, 14 to 15 months, we released, we made two regular albums and and uh, four irregular albums so we made we made six albums in that time period i think that is pretty good i absolutely nobody the band was pretty uh, nervous about that when i put the bar higher and higher and said look but we also make a month a song every month and we said oh, how are we going to do that and we're going to do these muster house recordings so uh, it ended up to be uh, then literally uh six records in, in, in 15 months which is which is great because having having done that and they, these are all fairly different uh, let me describe it this way we were working uh, say in three different um, theaters at the same time we were working at the at the big opera house where we were working on this album and we also had a small chamber theater somewhere else where we worked on these monthly monthly uh, songs coming out, which are entirely different from the material that's on the album, and we had a little uh, old factory that is disused where we did our experimental theater in the uh, weekends. So we had basically had like three different things where working was completely different, but we worked on all these in parallel. This experimental theater there, the factory, is something that we did every three months. You know, we did like a week of working on that, a couple of performances, etc. And this one we would do a new little piece every month, and uh, the big opera house we would continue working. All this stuff that we are that we are worked in the experimental side of what we were working on had its influence back on, on what we were doing in the opera house, so to speak. The opera house being meaning the main album. Things, things that, we are, that we worked out in, in experiments, uh, we would take back and we'd say, well, this is good, we can use that in the opera house, you know. Like, and uh, things that, we are, that we've worked that didn't fit in the, in the opera, we put in the, in the smaller theater. Or, we, or things that were, were good in the smaller theater, some techniques, some things that we worked out, and we just took back to the opera house. So that all this had an influence on the album. The album ended up to be fairly homogenous in a way. It is, it is, it is not as many uh, try and error on the on the album now as there would normally be. Normally, when Neubarten makes a new record, then I am able to to uh, say a lot about you know new instruments and new materials that we have explored or new, new installations that have been built i can't tell anything like that right now because uh, there was there wasn't much most of the experimenting was happening in, in completely different building sites so to speak we were doing things and the results of that went back but but uh, it is much more this time has much more to do with uh, me and has much more to do with vocals. And has much more to do with singing, with lyrics, and and ultimately me. This time I actually did, really did say me, 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 me on this record. Very often when I write a, a record, then I just put up parameters for myself and saying, okay, this record, no I, no first person singular. 
or I say like look there has to be something in in a different language in every song or something and, and, and this time I didn't do anything like that I just said okay whatever comes out I will I will let it happen and uh, naturally a lot of me 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 came out so every every basically every second song has, is has its autobiographical tint in a way yeah. and that is uh, and there is more singing, and there is more vocals. Then, 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 not that there was little vocals before, but there's certainly uh, it is more present in this time. That's the way it came out. I didn't plan it that way, but I guess that's what you do in an opera house, and such a speaking. With with uh, the the focus more on yourself, do you feel um, do you feel um, how do you call it? Not exposed, but like. Um, yeah. Right. yeah. No, no, no. It's, it's not. It's not wrong. I, I, I could be hurt. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. That is uh, sure. I, I let. Uh, I thought I'd, I just really didn't need much defense. I just thought I'd, I let it happen. Uh-huh. Ah, so I. Uh, there are songs on it where in in Germany it's it's very strange. I mean, I'm following. I'm getting an email every day from uh, the German, the uh, the girl that we have hired to do the uh, promotion. Well, and so she sends me an email with like whatever is coming out in the press because record came out last week, okay. and in Germany it's coming out here next week, I think. The twenty third, I think it just came out. No, I think it is uh, coming. Oh. It's delayed for a week because oh, they had pr- problems with printing the sleeve. Mm. Oh. Uh, I think it comes out the first week of November. No, oh, okay. yeah, and um, I get a roundup about all these things being written. I have done a whole interview tour throughout Europe. I've been to New York and did the interviews, and I'm, as you see, I'm sitting here and I do a little bit of press here too. But uh, naturally, a lot, a lot is, going, is getting written in Germany or Germany, Austria, Switzerland, the German-speaking countries. And in general, the reviews are good. Uh, I haven't got much respect for the journalistic profession, I have to say. In general, they they are good, but then a lot of times they're really sloppy or they're inaccurate or anything. But you wouldn't wouldn't expect how much plain hate there is, and all the hate is is really uh, is really focused on me as a person. Wow. That is uh, there is like in every like third fourth in there is really they stab me. They stab me because uh, there is so much dislike. from various, of course, there are persons that like me, but there is a lot of dislike for me as a uh, as a figure, as a, as a person in Germany. That I I do get it back like a uh, full volume, really. Wow, wow. <laughs> and I haven't really seen that, uh, you know. And I, I I spend a whole day talking to Italians in in Italy, and all the reviews are great, and nobody is 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 trying to stab me. It really just comes from Germany. Um. Well, I, I I think it's I think a lot of like journalists are jealous because they're not doing what the people that they're talking to are you know I think there's some jealousy. Yeah, but yeah, but what do you, what, music journalists that a lot of them are would love to be musicians. Yeah right, yeah that's uh, sure sure that happens. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. but, um, what, what, is, what is it about Germany that um, why well, why do you think there's that? I don't know and and but uh, this is this was just the appendix to to your question before if it is. Uh, it, yes, I can be hurt, and I know that, and yeah. uh, and and I get it right now in, 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 on a daily on a daily level. Uh, but I, I'm surprised to see that you know it really just comes from uh, from the Germans. It is it, the, 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 uh, maybe there's even some kind of self hate in that. They re- they really don't like the international successful German rock musician. 
they don't like that. They would, they, you know, they want to be provincial. They think uh, it's not fair. Why him? Why them? This is, uh, you know, can't it be so and so? No, so and so is not successful. They don't like Rammstein either. But, uh, but okay, well, that's not very hard. <laughs> it's not very difficult. I'll tell you why I don't like Rammstein. Because they really, really uh, surf the cliche of what German singing is meant to sound like. I hate that. I'm very, I'm very happy that I don't sound like that. It's, I mean, it's not the guy's fault. He really has a voice like that. His R is like that. I can't even do that. But it serves so much the cliche of the, you know, the German and the German language and the German as a singing language. You know, this is, uh, I met a Marine once who told me he's working out in a gym listening to Rammstein. <laughs> Ramstein, of course, yeah, yeah. It's for jobs, yeah. <laughs> No, no, but uh, it, it somehow I feel it, it reminds me. It, I feel also sorry for all those like German Jewish actors that went in the, in the Third Reich to Hollywood and ended up playing Nazis in the movies. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's kind of like the similarity to me. Right, right. I don't say Ramstein are Nazis. That's not what I, that's not what I mean. It's just I'm just curious about how much they serve that cliche. Yeah. I don't like it. And I don't want to do that. Are they still big? I don't even know. They, they, they're big. Uh, okay. I don't know if they're still big here. I guess so. I don't know. Uh, um, what do they do? I mean, it's, it's, all the people are nice. They are probably nice too. It's okay. They love Neubauten, of course, but... Uh, yeah, but uh, as I said, my criticism goes goes into that, and I'm very happy that I'm I was able to sing. Even now, you hear me talking in the radio, you hear my German accent, but my singing in German, at least, it doesn't sound so 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 um, cliche German. I think it is. I think there's a certain softness to it that you don't necessarily um, connect with singing in German. But you don't have to sing in German and sound like I'm singing. And um, what's great about your records is uh, the international public gets to um, learn a little bit, a little bit of German at the same time. I think I know more German because of you. Yeah, I know. I know a lot of people around the world that uh, that went to the Goethe Institute and learned German because they wanted to understand this. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they should pay me. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the German, um, the the what do you call those people? The, uh, the German um, Ministry of Culture. Yeah, I know. See, but then, uh, there you go. This is all. It, it, it rounds up in a way why why there is a lot of um, adversity coming. Coming, they, yeah. you know, I don't know. I'd, I'm glad it doesn't come so much back like from other sources. I don't really. I'm I'm, I'm talked in in New York. I've done three longer longer on camera interviews and they were all they were all like like this one you know I, I, I just talk it's okay and I don't have the feeling that they just wait until they find a, a way to step me in the back yeah? yeah wow so that's enough of that it's a great record I'm absolutely happy with that yeah that's enough of that it's a great record I'm absolutely happy with that yeah, see yeah. that that's it's more I this one is more deeply satisfying for me than, uh, of course, I love all the children and all the records that we made. And it's always the last one that I'm uh, particularly happy with. But uh, somehow the uh, satisfaction with this one goes a little bit deeper. Maybe, in fact, also because it's the first time that we do a record ourselves completely. I didn't want to find myself sitting somewhere in 2020 and thinking I should have done it myself. 
So we finally did make a record completely independent, supported by the supporters, by financed by the supporters who made the record we're doing the promo we are the distribution we are the record label if anything goes wrong now then we can blame it on ourselves and how is the um the supporter network um, the success of that or uh? otherwise there wouldn't be a record if it would have not been successful it is successful the records uh, the records are in the mail so to speak so as we sit here they will arrive all over the world because these, we had supporters in the end from, I think, 40 different countries. There, so This is a very nice global network. They talked a lot to each other. A lot of them actually helped us in uh, doing the promo, too. The promo text was written by a supporter. The, uh, in a lot of countries, we have a dedicated supporter that was putting up the interviews and, and things like that. So there was, a lot, there was a lot of help from... It's a bit grassroots, but there's nothing wrong with grassroots. Uh-huh. You know, I think that's good. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, when well, when a new mountain uh, started, did you did you think it would uh, the project would last this long? No, no. no. Uh, when new mountain started, and I was starting something about every two weeks, so okay. I did not really think that particular this one would last so long. No, uh-huh. I, I realized somewhere, somewhere when I when I signed the first record contract, which was a mistake that I regret to this day but when I signed the first record contract I realized that Neubauten now actually has to go on right? because I had just signed a record for three albums so uh, you regret that but actually that might have been the jumping point where you might not have had the longevity I regret it because we were ripped off by the record company okay. that's the reason why I regret it I'm still fighting with that same company oh really so does everybody. It was the same company that Psychic TV was on, the Swans were on that, uh, you know, and they've all been ripped off. Yeah, yeah. The guy is still existing, he's still alive. I should send the supporters over there and change that. A <laughs> 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 call for an assassination on you. <laughs> um. I, I got to interview Vim Vendor. Just put that message there saying, could you just please go over to this SS and check if nothing has happened to him? You know what I mean. <laughs> we want to make sure he's well. <laughs> yes, you know what we mean. Well. Is he well? <laughs> if you come back to us and say he's not well, oh, we are not sorry. <laughs> And, and we appreciate that you relayed the message to me. Yeah, but I don't even know what happens then. And probably somebody uh, in his family is... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, getting the person out of the world doesn't really change very much in our situation. Uh, all the others, like uh, Psychic TV and the Swans, they all ended up... Or Coil, they all ended up in, in, in lawsuits with him and, uh, and uh, were promised to get money in order to drop everything. So everybody dropped it and nobody of them got money. We're the only ones that, that, that did not agree with him. And so to this day, we're still fighting. And this is, we're talking about a record contract that, that uh, finished in 1989. So we're still fighting. And he still you know, puts music in Hollywood movies without telling us, without paying us. And it's, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Mm. So, at least you're not on any jingles. Have you been on any commercial jingles because of that? To my knowledge, no, not not to my knowledge, not to my knowledge. No, it's just um, yeah. Was it? Was there? Um, I I remember seeing. I was just reminded. Were you um, promoting a hard some type of hardware store or something in uh, Germany? I saw you done some commercials. 
Yeah, you can. They're all over the net. You can, you can, right. you can find yeah, them. Right. They, they really. I, I did it. I did it because I thought it was a really funny idea. I basically, I basically read out, uh, read out of their catalog, but I read it like, right. uh, like uh, lyrics, yeah. and uh, it did win all the relevant prizes that you can get for advertising. It's got the golden, the golden whatever in Cannes at the. Uh, Advertising Film Festival and it's got the Art Directors Club gold medal. It's got all the prizes that you can get. Yeah. Yoo-hoo. Not that I get anything out of those prizes, but uh, uh-huh. but I'm happy. They're all over the net. They're really hilarious. Yeah. Somebody should actually put them to music. I think that would be good as an electronic or techno piece or something. Uh-huh. You know. It'd be great if um, we could find some company in the U.S. to do the same thing. I don't. But I guess you're, you're not as well um, person. As in Germany, no, no, see, yeah, no. The joke is is lost. I mean, the joke had to be explained to the uh, people in Cannes too yeah. that this guy is a German rock star that plays in a band that uses a lot of like tools and and things like that, and it's called collapsing new buildings. Once they got and understood that, that's when they actually uh, decided that that it's worth the price, mm, the grand the grand price of the jury. Yeah. Um. Um, Einstein, De Neubauten. Their new release is Alice Wieder Offen. We'll have more from Blixa Bargeld in a bit. You're listening to Pirate Cat Radio, Drinks with Tony. Um, you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Our guest is Blixa Bargeld, lead singer of Einstein, De Neubauten. Their latest release, Alice Wieder Offen, is available in Europe now for international listeners and will be released in the, in the United States on November 6th. Here is segment four of my interview with Blixa. You're listening to Pirate Cat Radio, Drinks with Tony. That's enough of that. It's a great record. I'm absolutely happy with that. Yeah. See, that's, it's, it's more... I, this one is more deeply satisfying for me than, uh, of course, I love all the children and all the records that we made. And it's always the last one that I'm... Uh, Sorry about that. <laughs> Let's make that segment five. Power Cat Radio, Drinks with Tony. Um, with, with the latest um, CD, I heard you're doing uh, some Europe shows and some... Uh, oh, um, let, let me, let me, uh, let me have a complete brain fart. You, um, uh, are you starting a record label or something in Shanghai? Was that what I heard? Um, is well, that was a lot of mumble jumble. I would was say. That? Okay. Yeah. Well, what you started with the new CD, and then uh, then oh, you no, said no, no, I'm no. starting a record label in Shanghai. Oh, I'm a complete mumble jumble. I am not starting a record label in Shanghai. No, I okay. live in Beijing, not in Shanghai. Oh, Beijing, Every modern Western people that moves to China uh, talks about uh, Shanghai. Yeah, Shanghai is boring. Is it? Okay. No, it's not boring, but it's all about money and nightlife and fashion and okay. how to get rich yeah. for the Chinese. But uh, it, uh, Beijing is still the uh, true center and, and the heart of China, and uh, I am in Beijing. I was in Shanghai for a while. I didn't like it. Oh, okay. But that is already years years ago. So okay. uh, in between, I was in San Francisco. Now, now I'm in Beijing, and I, of course, uh, I know musicians there, and uh, they're great musicians in Beijing, and I have, I have actually produced a uh, a Chinese band. But uh, I, I don't need to start a, a, a record label in China. The Neubauten have their own record label, and if I want to release, and I will release the band that I've produced, then I'm probably going to do it on, on our record label, yeah. Oh. Wait, what's the scene like in uh, Beijing? Is there, is there a lot of uh, gravity? I mean, is it, you know, the opening up? Does it seem like it's just uh, new, I guess, or thriving? Or is it like 80s Berlin, or, you know... 
Well, you know, most China is still a developing country, and uh, so there is uh, only there are about 16 million people in Beijing, and uh, within that, I know about two two dozen uh, two dozen great avant-garde musicians, and uh, most of them make what they do with hardly anything, simply because they don't have anything. And it's, you couldn't do something like Neubauten in uh, in Beijing or not as easily because literally everything gets recycled within the wink of an eye. It's gone. You know the streets are completely clean because everything gets recycled. Um, so many people live in the recycling business that you can't really go out and find scrap metal like I used to do in uh, urban debris West Berlin. That sim- wouldn't simply be possible. You would have to go somewhere and buy it. Yeah, so it's uh, but it, it still creates a similar situation because uh, I don't know. It's it, it, it reminds me more of West Berlin in, in the early '80s and than many other cities too. Strange enough, it is absolutely China and all that, but in in a way that there is a uh, a very um, elusive little elitarian uh, artist circle of musicians and kids there. There's of course also Chinese heavy metal and Shanghai heavy metal and they are they're, they're battling each other who's faster that's more like the Scandinavian uh, school of heavy metal uh, but I don't know much about it. So, and, uh, I mean the, uh, the band that I produced they, uh, they were they were opening for uh, Sonic Youth. Sonic Youth just played the first show in Beijing, and uh, half an hour before they uh, went on, uh, the police came and uh, stopped the support act because uh, some uh, jealous rival band has uh, rang the police and, and said that they are uh, having an, an anti-Tibet song in their repertoire, which is simply not true. But, you know, it's, it's jealousy, and then, then they ring, and then the uh, police comes and said, no, doesn't tell you why or what, and I said, no show. Wow. Yeah. It was a, yeah, so you, you don't really forget that that is still the country that they're all living in. Uh, so it's not, it's not all happiness. Uh, but uh, it is pretty, I mean, it's pretty useless starting a record label in China. Nobody can buy records. Okay. Right? It's a, even even Neubauten records, they're all bootlegs. Everything is a bootleg, but you haven't got any other chance in in in, uh, in China because uh, if the Western record companies would like to license records and have them on the Chinese market, nobody could afford them because nobody has that money. So that's it. Or say a few hundred people. Or for for a country like uh, like like China, you know, it's, uh, what have you got there? One one point two billion people uh, selling a hundred records. Or, so that's why it's all bootlegs. Uh, I know record shops in Beijing where you go in and say and and just get the record out and you just burns you the copy right there. Wow, and that's it. Yeah. What's the um? Wait, wait uh, what was was it a culture shock to move to Beijing? What was for you? Well, I have been uh, I have been uh, prepared before. As I said, I was in uh, in Shanghai for for a while and uh, on and off, and I was in Hangzhou and then Ningbo, and so it's not some no, not so much actually. It's still a city and it's f- still fairly big. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
It was more shocking when I was when we were still looking for housing in San Francisco. I lived in a Menlo Park for three months. I tell you, that was more shocking to me than oh, than, than God, yeah. <laughs> that was definitely more shocking. I just noticed that I'm not ripe for that kind of uh, lifestyle yet. <laughs> I didn't even know that in Germany that that wouldn't be called a city, I, I, a village. Yeah, yeah. It's a different country. She, she started smiling. She must know something about Menlo Park there. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's like international travel, as far as I'm concerned. Um, what was your decision to move to San Francisco? What? It's all personal. Einstein der Neubauten. Their latest release is Alice Wieder Offen. And here is another segment of my interview with Blixa Bargold. You're listening to Pirate Cat Radio, Drinks with Tony. I will produce, uh, I will produce uh, three podcasts next for uh, different uh, lines of the album, basically for different songs of the album the, that will follow the uh, actual development and, and evolution of particular pieces on the record. Or how they went from say an, a live improvisation to uh, the next stage and to try and error into until they arrive where they where they are on the album now so you have to watch out for that and uh, to find it in the usual channels I guess it means neubauten.org iTunes or whatever podcast directory you're using just to let people know so have a look at the website every now and then and you know good um, how long are you in San Francisco for a while when you're heading back I'm going back in December to, uh, I'm, no, I'm going back to Berlin first. Okay. I've, I have to, uh, yeah, do some work, uh-huh. and then I'm, then I'm probably going to Beijing. You must have the best, um, what do you call it, uh, airline mileage accumulation. I have a lot of airline mileage, yes. And still, I was working all all morning on trying to book myself a flight for for Berlin, and was, I should have done it. Two weeks ago, oh, really? trying to find December anywhere is but uh, yeah. Christmas uh, makes it difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Sometimes I feel like a travel agent anyway, uh-huh. and because uh, these three places make it uh, necessary to actually do a lot of booking on flights, etc., and then I find myself sitting for days on end and trying to work on flights. Round the world tickets. How are you on airplanes? Can you just go to sleep like that now? No, no, no. White No, I, I'm just not very comfortable. Oh, okay. It's, I just came from. I came back on Sunday from. Uh, no, on Monday from uh, New York. Uh-huh. Oh, one hour delayed on the runway in a, in a fully booked economy class American Airlines seat. Oh, my ass still hurts. <laughs> when you're on flights, um, do you ever get somebody sitting near you that knows you and like tries to talk you up? It happens. That's all that happened before, yeah. I got an email once from a, from a girl that was sitting on the, on the row, row on the other side of the plane that said uh, that I looked like I find flying as uncomfortable as her, that she's really, really afraid of flying, but that looking at me was making it a little bit more comfortable. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so she must have been sitting over there shivering and being ridden yeah. by flight angst, and uh, yeah. she found it somehow reassuring that I'm in the plane. Wow. 
please, if it helps, be my guest. Yeah. What? Oh, um, what do you get? What's your recognition when you're in San Francisco and Beijing and uh, Ber- compared to Berlin? I'm sure you recognized a lot more in Berlin. Is it a hassle um, in the public when you're uh, getting recognized? Or, yeah, 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 yeah. Or every now and then, yeah. In Germany, is it more? Naturally, yeah. I guess so, because in Germany they saw me even in those Hornbach advertisings right, on television. Right, right. Yeah, sure. Yes. But it happens in Beijing too. Uh, really? Yeah, rarely. But okay. Is it dis- is it um, discomforting to you or? No. Nope. No. No, I have a, I also have a bit, bit the air of unapproachability around me, so I'm not really get hustled that much. Oh yeah. I know that there are many more people that actually recognize me, but they wouldn't do anything about that. So uh-huh. I remember I was picking up a letter at the uh, post office. To me, to Blixer Bargeld, and uh, and uh, the guy at the post office guy just kept saying, Blixer Bargeld, no, that's not a name, it's a company. And I said, no, it's not a company, it's me. it's me. And then somebody behind me in the line just leaned forward and said, yes, it's true, I can... I can. <laughs> okay, well, I guess there are always people around me that actually recognize me. What was that? That was in Berlin at the post office. But I remember also in, in Beijing that uh, somebody putting up a camera like your colleague over there on the table and always trying to, to snap secret photos of me. Uh-huh. I was sitting in a restaurant and sitting at the camera and, went, and thinking I'd not, I'd not realize it. Uh-huh. Well, I had to change my chair and sit with a back to him. Oh, yeah. I don't like being photographed while I eat in a restaurant in China. For I don't know what somebody's blog. Oh right, exactly. Um, I get blogs from San Francisco where the guy from the cheese counter at Rainbow is telling that he just saw me in the shop and all that. So. Oh really? Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> yes, it is funny. It's like um, looks up our spotting. Uh, yeah, it, yeah. I, well, I mean, I guess the word is out. People know that I do actually spend a lot of time in San Francisco, but uh, for for the first. Because I already had mentioned Menlo Park, we were looking for a house for a very long time. Once we found it, we actually left for Beijing. But uh, for the first couple of years that we were changing addresses in San Francisco, I guess it was a bit uh, of a Blixer spotting. And we, it happens every now and then still that I'm at a petrol station. I'm like, Blixer, what are you doing here? You got a performance? No, I live here. So let's look around the cafe and see if anyone's uh, typing fast and kind of looking at us. <laughs> the guy next there, ear, ear dropping in and writing down every word. And he's probably German, writing, baking for a German newspaper. Um, I, I got to interview Vim Vendors uh, a couple of years ago. He was a friend of mine. Yes, yes. He was, um, he was, he talked, well, what was funny was that we were talking about his film and then I started talking about, uh, you and Crime in the City Solution and that 80s era, German, um, era in, in Berlin. And he was like, now we are talking. It was such a beautiful moment because he wanted to talk about music rather than his film. What, what, what was, um, what, what was the vibe of the, of that 80s Berlin just, I mean, it's, that, it's always been difficult to describe for me because I was born in Berlin. I actually grew up there. For me, the, old, the whole uh, wall uh, situation it was just feeling normal. I just, I just, every time I left Berlin, I felt how uh, things are different. You know, the first gig that Neubarten played outside Berlin was in Hamburg, which is the second biggest city in Germany, in West Germany. 
That means we had to leave West Berlin, uh, go drive for like four hours through the GDR to about 200 kilometers, uh, two and a half, 250 kilometers to Hamburg, where suddenly everything was culturally completely different. You know, the punks were beating you up and uh, the, uh, the, the, they had a completely different vibe and I guess in, I don't use that word, word very often but I guess in that case it's justified to, to what it was like in Berlin in Berlin the, all these different scenes from, from, from artists I mean painters and uh, musicians avant-garde musicians were much more entwined they were much more inter, interwoven in a way and there was uh, there was certainly a, a bit more tolerance amongst these different groupings while in Hamburg the uh, frontiers were very hardened already that's the first thing you notice as a West Berliner suddenly coming to Hamburg I didn't really leave West Berlin very much so I was I could say that probably probably 1978 till 1980 I never left West Berlin no, it's not wow. I mean, it's a city. It's like living on an island. You know, if you live in Jamaica, you don't walk around and say, I leave every two months either. No, so, but I lost my passport, so I didn't, couldn't really leave very much. Oh, really? Um, no, and it's always, it's, uh, it was quite a drag to doing that. It was minimum six hours till you're, till you're somewhere else because you have to go through the GDR. But uh, and, and subsequently, when you when Neubauten continued and you're playing first show in London or playing in Paris, and said I started to realize how much more different all these places are. Yeah. I think things like uh, pub hours in London, I couldn't believe it that that you that you that, you, that Berlin. And I didn't even know that. Berlin has what you call in, in Germany police hour. Berlin has not got that. Police hour is the hour where particular uh, bars, etc., have to close. So, and that was usually something like in Munich or something like midnight or one in the morning or something. And then you go to London, a place that is far, far bigger than uh, Berlin. And, thing, and then at 10 o'clock, somebody rings the bell and says, last drink orders. And they are they, are they crazy? Yeah. Or you go to the US and you have to walk around with a brown paper bag to conceal your beer. It's just... Right. Uh, and so that's how I learned how different other places are. Because Berlin, to me, felt normal. Every Berlin, West Berlin, was full of people that are not from West Berlin. <laughs> because uh, it was attractive for many, many different reasons. One of the reasons is uh, you didn't have to go to the army. You know, there was it's it's still draft and you know what do you call it? It's still um, a duty in uh, in Germany. When you are 18, you get to go to the army for a year or something. When you're in Berlin, you're not going to the army because Berlin is after Second World War a demilitarized zone. There is no army. So uh, of course, once you had the on your mind made up, you would actually move to Berlin because then you don't have to go to the army. Don't lose a year. Yeah. So. That, that forms a particular political direction automatically. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. I have two upcoming storytelling classes. 
one on campus at UCLA in spring, and one online. So go to TonyDuchesne.com for more information on that if you're interested. Also coming up on Drinks with Tony in future episodes, we have Gabriel Hart, Delphine Vigil, um, Lee Goldberg, Hugh Patterson, a.k.a. Johnny Genocide of No Alternative, and many more. So keep coming back and listening.